Good evening. A special prosecutor is named to investigate January 6th and classified documents found in Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, Nancy Pelosi's swan song, a battle over a park curfew and unhoused people, and the saga of Charis El Bohio on the Lower East Side. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianzo with the news for Friday, November 18th, 2022. Attorney General Merrick Garland named a special counsel on Friday to oversee the Justice Department's investigation into the presence of classified documents in former President Donald Trump's estate. Separately, the special counsel will also investigate events surrounding the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The Department of Justice has long recognized that in certain extraordinary cases, it is in the public interest to appoint a special prosecutor to independently manage an investigation and prosecution. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. The special counsel will conduct the investigation into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or with the certification of the Electoral College vote held on or about January 6. Today, I signed an order appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. As special counsel, he will exercise independent prosecutorial judgment to decide whether charges should be brought. Appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. Mr. Smith is the right choice to complete these matters in an even-handed and urgent manner. Special Counsel Jack Smith led the Justice Department's Public Integrity Section in Washington and later served as the Acting Chief Federal Prosecutor in Nashville, Tennessee during the Obama administration. He's set to begin work immediately. And the White House was mum on the appointment of a special counsel to investigate Donald Trump and his followers with an election in two years that will probably become a grudge match between a centrist Democrat and the hard right Trump who believes without evidence the liberal deep state stole his victory in 2020. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. He was not aware. We were not aware. As you know, the Department of Justice makes decisions about uh, its criminal investigation independently. Uh, we are not involved. We are not. We have not been aware about this particular uh, investigation or any criminal uh, criminal investigation. Uh, I would refer you to the Department of Justice on any uh, questions on this. But again, we were not given advance notice. We were not aware uh, of this uh, of this uh, investigation. Pierre also addressed an announcement by the State Department that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman should have legal immunity over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi was killed and dismembered by a team of Saudi agents inside the kingdom's consulate in Istanbul, where he'd gone to obtain papers he needed to marry his Turkish fiancée. The court filing was made by the Department of Justice in a suit brought against the kingdom by Khashoggi's fiancée, Hach Senjis. The move would make bin Salman immune from lawsuits as head of state. Senji's told reporters Biden himself betrayed his word, betrayed Jamal, adding history will not forget this wrong decision. The White House responded on Friday. Our hearts go out to her. We understand she she lost uh, someone that she loved very dearly. She, you know, she, we totally get that and understand. Um, 
you know, this was a legal determination. The immunity is a legal one, as I just stated. Uh, I, you know, it has nothing to do with the merits of the case. Want to be very clear uh, about that, and would, wouldn't read anything into the filing when it comes uh, to the future of the relationship, which I have said we are evaluating. Amnesty International said Friday that the United States government should hang its head in shame. This is nothing more than a sickening, total, deep betrayal. A day after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she would step aside, Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York launched a historic bid Friday to become the first black person to helm a major political party in Congress as leader of the House Democrats. Yesterday, Pelosi agreed it was time for new blood at the top of the party. Scripture teaches us that for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me speaker, leader, whip. There is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. House Democrats will meet behind closed doors as a caucus in two weeks after the Thanksgiving holiday to select their new members. As the deadline approached for Twitter employees to respond to Elon Musk's ultimatum to commit to working in an extremely hardcore fashion at the company or leave, another employee exodus appears to be underway. The decision to issue an ultimatum came after Musk earlier this month fired half of Twitter's staff, reducing its workforce to about 3,700 employees and also reportedly cutting many of Twitter's contract workers. A senior media specialist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation is Karen Gulo. She tells the news the real fear is Musk's plan to eliminate verified Twitter users. She says it's a threat to freedom movements around the world that depend on Twitter. He cares very much about revenues and cares very much about Twitter's financial picture. And that's part of the reason why he introduced this revamped sub subscription service called Twitter Blue. You pay $7.99 a month, you can get a blue check. Previously, the blue check indicated that Twitter had verified the account as belonging to like the person or organization. Often it was like celebrities and journalists, but also activists and artists and others. The blue check verified that the account was the person or organization that it claimed to represent. It was a way to combat fake accounts and mis misinformation, garner trust in the platform. But now the way that it was rolled out and then it was paused, essentially anyone who can pay $8 a month can get a blue check and they're not being verified. That's what caused Twitter to blow up because a lot of people took advantage of that. They used their accounts to impersonate other people and set up fake accounts. That was one of the reasons why it had to be put on pause. It's going to be resurrected. That's what Twitter has said. 
But I think it's a model that's going to disproportionately affect people and groups because remember, Twitter is used all around the world, not just used in the United States. During a lot of stressful times, Arab nations and, and elsewhere, Twitter was where people went to communicate and to share information. It really was a tool for people who were having to deal with authoritarian governments. What's to stop a government planting false information? The issue we're looking at is that whenever it's resurrected, and even if it's not actively abused, the Twitter blue pay-to-play model is going to disproportionately affect people and groups that can't afford $96 a year. It might sound strange to us here, but it's not strange other places. And it's also going to undercut their ability to be heard because, you know, in the past, blue checks were like a sign of trustworthiness for journalists and human rights defenders and activists, especially in countries with authoritarian regimes where Twitter had been a vital source of information and communication. If you don't pay for that blue check now, those accounts will not have priority ranking. Only the accounts that are paid for will receive priority ranking and will appear first in search replies and mentions and such. Those that are not accounts that are going to be monetized, that's going to leave behind a lot of Twitter users in sort of unmonetizable regions. And it's going to ensure that their voices are going to be relegated to the bottom of the feed where very few people are going to be able to find them. And that's a big concern of ours. If I don't like somebody, I can just start an organization that pay the $8 a month and you'll see my assault on them before you see their thing. One of the things that Musk has talked about is that he wants to hew close to the laws of countries in which Twitter operates. But that could mean that the company will begin complying with censorship policies it had previously withstood. Twitter has done a lot in recent years to stand with users when it comes to that kind of thing. In Qatar, whose government is one of Musk's financial backers, there's a law there that threatens to imprison or fine anyone who broadcasts, publishes, or republishes false information, statement, rumors, inflammatory propaganda with intent to harm national interests, stir up public opinion, or infringe on the social system or public system of the state. That's really ripe for abuse. So the question is, if Twitter is asked to take down posts of people who Qatar thinks is violating this law, will it? That's a question. I'll leave you with one yeah. more thought. Authorities yeah. in India have pressured Twitter to block accounts that have criticized the government, including activists and journalists and politicians. In the past, the company has pushed back and even filed a lawsuit challenging the government's demand to remove 39 tweets and accounts. It's really a question mark now as to whether Twitter will continue to press that lawsuit, given the change in, in leadership. 90% of Twitter's 200 staffers in India have been let go. That also mm, makes it very questionable. In related news, Al Jazeera reports among the investors must tap to raise $44 billion to buy Twitter are the governments of Qatar and Saudi Arabia, as well as bank loans from Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, and banks in Europe and Japan. Musk, who's worth about $220 billion, coughed up $27 billion in cash of his own money, and software guru Larry Ellison wrote a $1 billion check. 
And in local news, an unusual community gathering was held at Tompkins Square Park on Manhattan's Lower East Side Thursday morning. The 10 a.m. meeting was between police, brass, and other agencies in response to complaints about drug activity in the park. The 9th Precinct called it a listening session to remind other agencies they have a part to play in the 10-acre park, considered a jewel in the community. As expected in this tumultuous neighborhood, known for its anarchists and homeless-friendly attitudes, there was little unanimity about what to do, and the meeting broke up in chaos. The police commander, Deputy Inspector Ralph Clement, opened proceedings with a lament of past failures in changing behavior in the park. This has been going on for decades, right? I've been here a little over two years, and before I leave this command, what I would like to do is to set something up where we have solid ground, right, to move forward from, right? The same complaints, the needles, the homeless, the garbage, the vermin infestation, that, that's what they showed me. That's what I have on my stat sheet. Now, we have increased our arrests. We have increased our quality of life summonses, but we also need assistance from our sister agencies, and this is why we're here. Like many places in New York City, the post-COVID reality has seen an increase in dysfunctional behavior, more unhoused people and a flood of rats. Although volunteers contribute time to keeping the park clean, the problem is daunting. In recent months, Tompkins Square Park has attracted activists for the unhoused, who erected tents only to have the structures pulled down by police. But cops tend to be light-handed in the park since an altercation, referred to by residents as a police riot, led to 120 mostly unassuming people hospitalized after police attempted to invoke a midnight curfew in 1988. The park became a tent city, attracting over 200 unhoused people who won various court decisions allowing them to stay. The occupation continued until 1991, until a series of riots led the city to close and renovate the park. It was reopened two years later. The traumatic experience led to an agreement, still in force today, forcing the city to house anyone who asks, a decision that's been criticized by Mayor Eric Adams. The residents were strongly divided on the use of the park, and those divisions were still evident Thursday morning, with many calling for stricter enforcement of the curfew and others saying, let the unhoused be. A local resident who wants the park closed is Debonair. I've lived right there for 45 years. I moved here in 77. I'm seeing this park becoming like it was, like a full circle all over again. Older people getting punched in the face, shut, shoved down, gang activity, needles. I watched two people shoot up there at nine o'clock in the morning while children are playing and then smoke crack. It's full circle again. A resident instrumental in setting up the park's dog run, the first in a park, is Garrett Rosso. He wants the midnight curfew enforced too. It cannot just be park enforcement police or the park staff closing the park because they don't have the power to clear the park. The park needs to be cleared as it was for 30 years. At 11.45, the officers would walk around. They'd come talk to us at the dog park. I even think one of you guys married a girl from the dog park. And we would quietly move everybody out of the park, close the gates, and it would stay closed for the rest of the night. But Deputy Inspector Clement had bad news for the pro-curfew faction. Where am I going to get the cops to police the park when other neighborhoods have more serious crime problems? Those of you who live in this community know what Avenue D is, correct? You know how dangerous that avenue is, right? Most of my homicides, shooting homicides, are on Avenue D. So I'm reallocating, and this is how important this revitalization zone is, the park is to me, 
instead of having six to eight officers on Avenue D, I only have two officers on Avenue D from my field training unit. The rest are allocated here along Avenue A and Avenue B, right? So I changed my whole resource allocation. So I would ask the Parks Department to also supplement us in this. Inspector Clement's plea to the Parks Department to help enforce the park curfew was strongly resisted by the Parks Enforcement Patrol, the independent agency that polices parks but is not part of the NYPD. They have limited power to arrest and are prohibited from carrying guns. Especially in Tompkins Square Park, we can't commit to closing the park every night, midnight. The safety hazard, you know, we, we, NYPD traditionally has done it. It's absolutely the issue. That's why the meeting was called. Okay, all right. So, Councilwoman Carlina Rivera, a controversial figure in the community herself, says the police should do what's necessary to enforce the park's overnight curfew. I just want you to know I'm here to listen to you all directly. You all call my office, you email, I thank you. I grew up in this park in the 90s. It was not exactly a picnic, but I know that some of you have been here a lot longer than that. I can't help the year I was born. But I just want to say that we're here because I also want to make sure that we're all working together. If we're truly going to revitalize Tompkins Square Park, we need you, we need sanitation, we need the Parks Department, we need Community Board 3, who takes as many complaints as my office does, and we certainly want to uh, uh, support the tenants here. Rivera has run on radical changes to policing. She's an advocate of Black Lives Matter and has called for reducing funding to the police. And Rivera asked Inspector Clement, what are the primary offenses that occur in the park? He laid out the challenges and the results of an investigation. You complain about the drug use, the drug problem. It is very difficult. We do not have the element of surprise anymore. You know why? We don't have plainclothes officers anymore. My officers are in their uniform, but they're still doing and conducting observations. And I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we conducted a two-week operation, which resulted in three arrests of drug sellers and drug users. But we want to have Parks Department help us to maintain this. NYPD Deputy Inspector Ralph Clement. Around the edge of the meeting, officers were chatting with residents. One officer blamed the city council, saying precincts are understaffed because cops are fleeing the profession in droves. Among the residents calling for increased enforcement were an equal number of residents who opposed closing the park. You're all talking about enforcement, about closing gates. You're talking like like these homeless folks are like like rats that you want to put in in another place they're regular people housing is the goddamn only solution and you're going to have to find the agency and they're going to find the money because there is the money I'm, i mean i'm not an expert on where the where the money is but if they really really wanted to solve this problem not because we folks don't like our quality of life being hurt and we don't for god's sakes i mean all those details are correct people shooting up litter, all that stuff. We don't like it. The folks in the park who, who do that stuff don't like it either. Another resident said what the park needs are old-fashioned police foot patrols. asking you to lock the park. We're asking you to lock the park. We want the park locked. I don't want the park locked. These people don't want the park locked, but if there's cops walking, then there's more confidence on the part of the people living that oh there's a couple of cops and funny i'm not seeing as many homeless around here they've been asked to move why can't that be a thing the old beat cop walk thing this was 50s 60s 70s 
Let's try that. I mean, can you guys spare the manpower to do that? It'd be good. And a young restaurant worker who lives near the park says it's not the unhoused she's scared of, but billionaires. I actually feel a lot safer walking through the park than walking around because I've been harassed by the cops way more times than I've been harassed by the homeless people. I've been harassed by the people who live in that building over there way more times than I've been harassed by homeless people. I've been harassed by the billionaires who like go to that bar over there way more times than I've been harassed by homeless people. So I actually, I actually am a resident and I have something to say about my community, which is that I feel a lot safer if the park is open. And as might have been expected, such diverse opinions eventually became an impediment to communication as factions feuded in front of exasperated police and city officials. You're not going to solve the problems in the world. We just want the park closed That's at midnight. Yes, it is. You don't need a police saying time to square park. It's not going to solve the problem. The park closed at midnight. You want to treat this neighborhood like it's a home in this neighborhood. You're putting on a performance. No, closing the park is not the answer. No, we are right then and we're right now. Guys, listen. Listen, hold on, hold on something. Jamie, thank you, Jamie. Listen, we held this meeting in a half and the traumatic story was on display as Chris Flash, editor of The Shadow, a local anarchist newspaper that was there in 1988 when the riot happened, the original riot happened, explained why his opponents just don't understand. Right in the 80s, we were right in the 80s, we shed blood for this park. We're not just going to walk away from the battles. Okay, but you are not shedding blood. Me and my people yes, are shedding blood. Okay, we had to fight gentrification. The forces of gentrification misused the police department to advance gentrification in our neighborhood. Look at the results now. Are you happy with the results of the gentrification? We are fighting gentrification. They were using the homeless. Chris Flash is editor of The Shadow. Meanwhile, Topka Square Park was quiet today. It was sunny but cool. Mostly the park was a shortcut between avenues A and B. A few older men were hanging around, but no sign of the neighborhood's passion. Just down the block from Tompkins Square Park, billionaires were also on the menu at 605 East 9th Street, the former public school 64, which was squatted by activists and turned into a community center known as Charis more than 20 years ago. The building was purchased at auction for more than $3 million by developer Greg Singer, who evicted the Puerto Rican-led cultural and community center in 2001. However, fierce opposition by residents and local politicians blocked Singer's plans. One version called for a high-rise university dorm. Blocked from developing the building, Singer sued the city for wrongful interference, but recently the building slipped into foreclosure with lender Madison Capital Realty about to seize control. There are so many lawsuits, the process has slowed to a crawl. Last week, former East Village squatters Frank Morales and Ken Tolia led a group they formed called the Low East Side Eastside Guardians to protect the building from what they say is a potential arson attack by developers. They were at the realtor's office Monday chanting, hey, billionaires, give us back our community center, Reverend Frank Morales. We had a protest up at Madison Realty Company and uh, Corcoran, both real estate outfits that are uh, listing Charis at this point. Singer, the former developer, who's still in the picture, I understand, even though the Madison group has foreclosed on him. They're the ones who made him a big loan. These entities holding hostage Charas Community Center. So we protested out in front of both uh, Corcoran and uh, Madison up in, on the Madison Avenue, demanding that they give back, take off their lists and delete from their um, portfolio. The former PS64 
We would then create a representative group here in the community and reclaim Chara. So now clearly the mayor needs to get involved and through uh, powers of eminent domain, claim the building and figure out a way to uh, deal with the financing. I don't have any doubt that we could fundraise to do the renovations we need through the community and the wider community in this city. And this is the situation, if the boot is taken off of the neck and we're able to uh, exercise our creative abilities, we could reclaim, renovate, revitalize a new community center in the, the former PS64. The Guardians also demonstrated at a Corcoran real estate office. Corcoran has the old school listed for sale as an 89-unit pre-war co-op, despite a deed restriction limiting its use to community facilities, such as, for example, schools, medical offices, dorms, or social service day centers. And that's some of the news for Friday, November 18th, 2022. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.